Flyers Daily with Jason Mertides. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Flyers Daily Podcast, one that is doing a rare feat of being live streamed, as Brian Bourne is just calling me. Oh, boy. Bad timing, Bourne. Uh, but anyway, um, it is Jason Martinez. <laughs> it is Bill Meltzer from PhiladelphiaFlyers.com, NHL.com, and HockeyBuzz.com. It is my broadcast partner on the Flyers pregame, intermission, and postgame show, Brian Smith. And ho-hum, nothing to talk about here. Just the naming of the president of hockey operations and Keith Jones, the interim tag removed from Danny Briere. Pretty big day here, Billy. No, for sure. Um, you know, there were zillion rumors, you know, leading leading up to this. Um, you know, it, it, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how, how the management structure is going to fit together. I think that one of the biggest reasons why, why Jonesy was hired is that it's going to be, from all indications, a, a non-traditional kind of arrangement. You know, you, you're not going to have the president slash president of hockey ops working over the GM and the coach working under the GM, you know, it's going to kind of be a, a bilateral structure. So it's going to be a collaborative thing with all three guys working together. And it's not, it's not the norm in the NHL. Um, some teams have kind of tinkered with, with the structure a little bit, but really it's uh, there's, there's not a lot of track record of this, obviously, Jonesy's in management for the first time. Danny's a first-time GM, so there's not a, there's not a track record to base it on. You're basing it upon the individuals involved and their their knowledge base in the game, uh, of which I, I I say that all three, you know, all three passed that that test. Um, but in terms of how it all fit together and how it worked together, I mean that that remains to be seen, and because it, that's really uh, it, first time doing it. Right. You know, this is a unique situation. You're with the team and, you know, I know you guys are spread out a little bit. You've been cleaning out the office and getting ready things for some renovations, but what's it been like around the team through this process of, you know, they move on from Chuck Fletcher, but you know, now you have uh, Danny with the interim tag removed and, and Jonesy hired. And I mean, just a, a lot of crazy uh, happenings of late. Yeah. I gotta be honest with you. It's been pretty quiet just in terms of, uh, you know, actual information flying around, uh, you know, there was a, uh, uh, it was kind of interesting for me yesterday. Um, I, I was actually out of town. I was down in Virginia, moving my son out of college and by 1130 in the morning was the first time I heard Jonesy's name mentioned at all. I, you know, I think I had heard, seen probably the same thing as a lot of you guys had seen, you know, the names that had come and gone across, uh, the last couple of weeks. And, um, Got in the car, drove six hours home roughly, um, and by the time I got home, it was uh, it was everywhere. So it was uh, it was really kind of interesting the way it all played out. Uh, but you know, it had been kind of hinted, I think, by by some of the folks that were keeping an eye on this that you know be ready for a, a, a off the radar name maybe coming into this, yeah. and then that's certainly what we got. But I think we got it in a good way. And and you know, to to your point about non-traditional management structures and things like that. I, I think it definitely is going to be a um, kind of a, a new uh, new look here that you really haven't seen around the league before. And, you know, Jason, you and I have talked about it in the past during games that, you know, even the whole concept of a president of hockey ops over top of a general manager is, 
is relatively new in the NHL, and it's something that really the Flyers only ever had once when when Paul Holmgren was the president and Ron Hextall was the GM. And then when Chuck Fletcher came in, uh, he had both roles again. Um, so you know, but but when you when you look at how we have have to operate around here on a day to day basis, I mean. It, the NHL has gotten to be such a big business that, you know, you, you need this sort of structure really to handle the, the day-to-day workload. Being a general manager of an NHL team is uh, a huge enough job in this day and age. Um, you know, communicating with the business side of things and, and being on the same page with everything going on across the whole organization is a whole second job in and of itself and that's why these president roles have started to come through and and that's where i think um they're they're looking for somebody like jonesy and his skill set just his interpersonal relationships with people number one his contacts around the league being number two and you know the fact that really he hasn't been in hockey management you know ever in a, an official role He's been more on the business side, you know, as a broadcaster and stuff. So he knows what goes into things like that. And, and it's going to be, you know, very, very helpful in linking those two together here. So, you know, that, that's kind of where it's headed, I think. And, you know, it, it's going to be a, uh, a bit of a new way of doing things. But, hey, that's something that this team has in its history. You know, first assistant coach and you know, video coaching, early adopters of that, all that sort of thing. So it, it fits right in with, with the team's uh, history here. You know, Bill, one of the things in today's NHL, you have 32 teams and teams that are able to to really be Stanley Cup contender, contenders and teams with cup contenders that are, you know, have some staying power and can do it for a long time. You have to build an entire roster. The draft lottery was this week, which we talked about the other day. And obviously they end up with the seventh pick. Um, they don't move up for Connor Bedard. And you look at, you know, the fact that since 1980, only 10 players that were drafted number one overall have actually won a cup. Um, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is this has to really three boxes need to be checked and they all need are of equal importance. Number one, the, the players on the ice, the team construction of what you see on the field of play. Players got to fit. You got to have skill. You got to have depth. Got to have goaltending. Got to have a little luck one along the way as well. Then you have the other element of culture and professionalism, how those guys interact off the ice uh, amongst themselves on the road and all of those. And then you have the fiscal puzzle, which is the financial element in the salary cap world uh, that's got to fit as well. So all three of these, if you have a weakness in any of them, Bill, you don't have much of a shot in today's NHL. No, for sure. And, and your management has to be pulling the rope in the same direction. That that's um, that was one of my reservations. Um you know, when the management structure was proposed, if you bring in someone who's been a longtime general manager, he's used to doing things a certain way. And if you're, you know, you have someone else with a GM title and you have a, you have a head coach that has significant influence on the, uh, you know, where they're going to go in the personnel and the, the roster building side. If, if they're butting heads and, and getting each other's lane all the time, and there's there's no collaboration between the three. I, I you're going you're going nowhere in a hurry. And I and I don't again I don't know if this is going to work or or not work. But but I did have reservations, you know, in terms of well if you bring in a and I, I mentioned the name Brian Burke not out of disrespect to Berkey but just because 
he's a guy who's used to getting his way and doing things a certain way. Lula Morello is used to doing things his way a certain way. And, you know, if you're, you're sharing power among three people, if it's somebody like that you're bringing in, I don't know if that, that would have worked. Um, and then, again, it remains to be seen that this will work. But I think those three areas, you've hit the nail on the head. You're building a roster. You're managing. You're managing a salary cap, right? And you're, and you have to. You have to be pulling. You have to be pulling the rope in the same direction. Um, one thing that I can say going into this is that there's an immediate comfort and uh, familiarity among the three big names, um, and that's uh, you know that, that's pretty big at the beginning stages. We'll see how it develops over time. Again. We're, you know, we're going to judge it based upon what the results are on the ice after after one season, after two seasons. You know, I, I think you need to have a, a little bit of patience on the front end, and then, you know, and then be uh, then be objective going forward as to okay, what's working, what can still get better. Right. One of the things the president of hockey operations, I, I think that we'll find out tomorrow, is kind of defining the role. When Chuck Fletcher had it and he had both, I, I always thought that if a GM was also the president, he was compromised in a way where, you know, a GM can't have to always be worried about butts and seats. He's got to build this the right way without being leaned on in those fashions. We don't know exactly what this role means for Jonesy. Had it been Doug Wilson or a former GM that was hired, I think we'd feel like it was a, a different role. But really what we need to find out next is – what is the structure and what is Keith Jones responsibility in all of this? And I think we'll articulate that tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, to getting a little bit of clarification on that uh, myself, just in terms of, okay, who, who reports to who here and then what's the primary focus for everybody, um, you know, in, in, in the way this is going to be all set up. Uh, you know, I will say this just in terms of what, somebody like Jonesy brings to a traditional hockey operations president role is a, a probably a unique knowledge of players around the league. And the reason I say that is because in his role as uh, a national analyst, um, you know, he is constantly getting on the inside of other organizations just from the standpoint of that's how, broadcasting works um, in, in the NHL, you as a broadcaster are afforded access to coaches in particular, but also, you know, some management people that you would not get as uh, even a scout. I mean, you know, you, you don't, you don't have a scout going downstairs before a game to talk with the head coach about his team. It just, you know, you don't get that uh, in, in that role. So, you know, Jonesy has had a chance to, get that kind build that kind of knowledge on, on every player in the league. So he'll be able to at least offer his opinions on guys, um, you know, with, with Danny apparently being in charge of all of the hockey decisions, he'll be able to, um, you know, to, to kind of, you know, give his opinion on based on, on what he's seen. Now on the other side of the coin there, um, you know, the other roles and stuff that, that he'll kind of contribute to, um, you know, again, the familiarity uh, is, is big for me. The fact that you're not bringing in somebody who doesn't know anybody in the entire organization and has to take several months to a year to get to know the personnel and, and things like that. I mean, you know, it, it, it can be tricky around here just in terms of 
figuring out who to call if you need the light bulb change. This is a pretty big building, you know, and it's a pretty big staff. And, and you see a light bulb battle. Well, how do we get that fixed? Um, you know, uh, he, he already has so much familiarity with the people uh, that run this organization, that run this building, um, that, uh, that, that, you know, he'll be able to jump right in and, and help with those parts of the business as well. And, and something else I'll add to that too, uh, Brian, is that, you know, this isn't unprecedented with somebody moving from the booth to a management role. Look at John Davidson, for example, mm-hmm. right? long, I mean, spent many, many, many years broadcasting before he moved over the management side or, or you know, or people just moving from playing directly into management. And it's been a while now since, since Danny played, but you know, Danny kind of uh, apprenticed on uh, the management side and then, then moved in the management. But uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of look around the league and, and uh, I, Steve Eiserman retired and then immediately became uh, vice president of hockey ops for Detroit. Right. And then had his first GM opportunity by, by going to Tampa or uh, Joe Sackick moved pretty quickly from, from playing to managing. And uh and then there, then there was a there was a gap in in the case of uh, Cam Neely between playing and managing, but he he went right to being a, a being you know t- towards the head of hockey ops in Boston, um, without without a ton of run up experience scouting and, and building up to that. So it, it's not unprecedented, and, and uh, you know there, there's no there's no question about Jonesy's how many people he knows around the game and the access that he's had. You know it, it, it's just a question of how it fits together to me. Yeah, I mean, you see it in all sports, guys that are analysts on TV back in. Rick Tockett was an analyst on TNT. He's now coaching the Vancouver Canucks. You, you see it, you know, in the NBA. All Doug Collins did it in the NBA. Was a coach for a long time, became a broadcaster and analyst, and then went back to coaching. So that that part's not that uncommon. And then the other thing, too, Bill, you know, you look around the league, and I was looking at the list of NHL GMs right now, and there are a lot of first-time GMs, whether it's, you know, Rob Blake or – um, guys like uh, uh, Bill Guerin, who sure. was a player, is now a GM. Chris Drury, they all had some apprenticeship as well to get to where they are. And, you know, th- there's a lot of younger guys in the game right now because the game has changed. And the fact that Danny did play pretty darn recently, uh, we'll stand to that. Now, the big thing, I think, when it comes to Briere, and we'll pivot to Briere and, and talk about the, the whole thing in just a moment, but, you know, Briere is a guy that has always presented himself um, very professionally, very, you know, as a guy that is, you know, a good human being and, you know, very respectful. But make no mistake about it. This is very important. Danny Briere is a killer when it comes to being competitive. So while he may be he may be the sheep. What's the old saying? Sheep and wool and sheep's clothing or something. Sheep's clothing. yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, he may be that guy that, you know, you think you're going to get one over on him, but he is really competitive and he is a guy that will compete and do whatever it takes to be successful. Was that way as a player? And I imagine that's going to translate into that way as a general manager. Oh, I'd say for sure. I mean, uh, that competitiveness and Danny's ambitious too. Danny is, you know, um, Danny, both as, as a player, and uh, so far in his managerial career, he, he's always set his sights very high. So, you know, uh, the lack of, you know, everybody, everybody lacks experience initially, right? So, um, 
And again, you know, he's going to be judged and deserves to be judged on the merits of what he does. You know, we, we can sit here and talk about we're, you know, we're, we're optimistic or, or people on the flip side, oh, we're, we're pessimistic, same old. And, and to me, it ultimately means nothing. He, he'll be judged by the merits of what he does. Um, in, in terms of in terms of the the personality qualification, yeah. I mean, Danny, Danny anybody's ever met Danny, any context, he, he's a gentlemanly guy, very approachable, you know, and all that too. But he wants to win. And that 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 that's always been the case. When he played, nobody ever under, underestimated him twice. They, you know, he had a number of suspension as in his career because of his, his level of competitiveness. He knew how to he knew how to create space for himself on the ice. And, and I suspect that that as he gains experience doing this too, he'll he'll know he'll know how to deal with other GMs, which guys he can trust, which guys are trying to get one over on him. It's all it's all you know part of the job and and, and part of. Uh, Part of trying to succeed in the NHL. I mean, it's a very competitive doggy dog business. It just, it just is. Uh, I don't think Danny's uncomfortable in that realm. Brian, one of the things, and one of the things you see quite a bit of is, oh, here the Flyers go again, hiring another former Flyer. Now, the the last couple of regimes, well, I mean, Ron Hextall obviously was a former Flyer, but Chuck Fletcher was not a former Flyer. Um, last bunch of coaches. When you go back to Dave Hextall, obviously, you go back to Elaine Vigneault. And you go now to John Tortorell, no former flyer ties. Um, but obviously, Danny Briere has uh, finished, didn't finish his career here, but played some really important years here. And he's a guy that, you know, like you said, knows the lay of the land, as does Keith Jones. Um, but this is kind of going back a little bit to, you know, having guys that are involved in the organization. And that's not exclusive to Philadelphia. You know, that happens. No in all sports leagues. I mean, when you look at the list of GMs, like I mentioned before, you know, I look at Rob Blake who played in Los Angeles. I look at uh, guys like Chris Drury who were a Ranger. I look at Mike Greer. He was a San Jose shark. A lot of guys, you know, you know, a person's competitive, what their makeup is if they were a member of your organization. And that's always going to be a feather in their cap when they're trying to get a position like this. It happens in every walk of life. I mean, every yeah. non-sports business, you've got people that are uh, running a business because, you know, they, they started there when they were younger or something like that. Uh, for, for me, when I look at uh, the, the former player status of these two guys, to me, it is, it is really just almost, um, you know, happenstance, if you will. Because if you look at their stats, obviously, um, Danny Breer, known for his his playoff runs, but regular season played 364 games for the Flyers played 609 games for four other teams. And in Jonesy's case, 131 games here, 360 games elsewhere. And then embarking on a, a 23 year television career where, um, you know, he's, he's obviously mostly covering Flyers games, but he, he's not a Flyers employee. So, you know, the majority of their careers has included exposure to other organizations is, is what it comes down to for me. Um, the connection that they have here is that both of them played here at times when the Flyers were, you know, one of the top teams in the National Hockey League. Obviously, they both played, um, you know, in, in times when the Flyers were at the Eastern Conference final level or better uh, than, than that. And so they were 
you know, in, in the situation that a lot of folks have grown accustomed to of being one of the teams to beat in the NHL on the ice, but also one of the marquee franchises off the ice. I mean, you know, for so many years, the Flyers on the business side were the, were the model for other teams around the NHL. So they know where this team has been in the past. And as far as looking to the past, that the only thing they want to do is to get them back to that status of a, of a marquee franchise. They both come into the jobs with completely new ideas, fresh ideas of how to do it. And, and those ideas I expect are going to be along the lines of the, the current reality of the NHL and what you need to do to succeed in this league. You've got to, um, you know, again, with, with deal with a salary cap that, that we, we both know the Flyers did not enter the salary cap era well. Um, they, they did not enter the uh, new rules era well with the elimination of the clutching and grabbing and, and physical play. And, you know, again, a lot of that had to do with uh, management that was connected to that old type of play. But that's not what these guys are. They're not connected to, to that old type of play, um, especially in, in Danny's case, his most successful years. He's one of the guys that the, uh, the, the new rules in 2005 just completely revitalized his career and, and sent him on to what he was able to do. So, you know, these are, these are guys that are well-versed in the current uh, ways that teams get to be successful. That's, you know, developing your prospects, developing your draft picks, um, you know, finding guys to contribute uh, significantly at middle salary ranges and not leaning too hard on the stars and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, you know, they, again, they come in with, with familiarity with the Flyers history but I think both of them have a uh, completely different idea of how to approach it. You know, Bill, when it comes to Keith Jones, you know, he played in Philadelphia. He didn't play here a tremendously long time, um, had the knee injuries that ended his career early. Uh, but as soon as he retired, you know, he did something very interesting. He, he was trying to figure out what he was going to do next. And, you know, when you just get off the ice, you just you don't have people knocking down your door, uh, you know, to, to do some kind of media job. You have to kind of earn it. And I think for two plus years, I was at WIP at the time. He started coming in with Angelo Cataldi in the morning show there. He didn't get paid for two plus years. He had to come in and prove his worth that, you know, he could come in and be an asset to the radio station. And he grinded, didn't get paid and did that and turned that into a career. And then obviously started doing some pre and post game live stuff on NBC Sports Philly, Comcast Sports at the time and became obviously you know, got involved with Versus when they got the NHL rights all the way to NBC and then TNT. Uh, but but he's a guy that's very well respected around the league from, you know, whenever he's doing games nationally or the Flyers are in City X or Colorado, Joe Sackick's grabbing him to talk to him about yeah. players and stuff like that. Talk about the respect level that he has around the NHL and how that can be a beneficial element of this. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I, I remember, remember a couple of years ago, you know, Dallas Stars came in. And uh, first person Jim Neal went and talked to was Jonesy, you know, um, and and it's that way around the league, as you said. I mean, he's a very very respected figure around the league, in part because he doesn't sugarcoat stuff, you know. Um, he's authentic. It's funny as funny as Jonesy can be, and he has, he has a great sense of humor. Just just you know, very quick. But the the flip side of that too is that. If he has an opinion on something and then, you know, he's in position to present that opinion, he gives it to you straightforward. You know, it, it, it's, um, you know, and, and I think, I think that's part of why he's so respected around the game. I mean, he's, uh, 
you know, he's taken the Flyers to task any number of times on the air, um, whether it's within a game or whether it's within a national broadcast and he has something to say, he says it. And and I think that's uh, that's admirable and, and it's part of it's part of why he has a respect factor that he holds. And and also and also as much as as much as Jonesy likes to go, oh, I don't prepare, I don't I just wing it. Jonesy's well prepared. Yeah. He he knows what's going on. Yeah, that that's baloney. I always I'm like, dude, you're like one of the smartest hockey guys I ever hear. We're the stuff you see when you watch the game and all of that. Um, he's got a little bit of old school in him, Bry. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's got, uh, you know, he's not, you know, the most progressive guy when it comes to the game. He believes it should be played a certain way. Um, Danny's a little more analytically driven. And having all of those different elements, I mean, they have a big analytics department headed by Ian Anderson. You know, they're all a piece of it. I don't think you can be any one of those things in today's NHL. You can't be all analytics and you can't be all eye test old school. Uh, but you have to be a combination of all of those things. And and that has to be an element of this going forward, too. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, um, you know, the uh, the 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 where the people are still trying to figure out exactly, I think, where analytics fits into everything here, because the silver bullet to me hasn't been found. If it had, everybody would be doing it. Um, and, and everybody's so protective of what they do internally that, uh, you know, that they don't want it to get out if they find it. But um, to, to me, the biggest example that jumps out to me as far as what kind of manager I think Danny is going to be is, uh, you know, you, you can read about it in the Inquirer if you do a Google search. His deep dive into analytics with Ian Anderson, the uh, head of the department here, and Travis Konechny. They took a... Uh, long, hard look at, um, at, at TK's game and broke down some things for him using analytical models. And uh, he gives it great credit for his bounce back year this year. I see that expanding. I mean, there's no reason it wouldn't uh, to, to go to other guys uh, around the room. And, and again, for, for me, when you're looking at analytics, it's like it's, it's part of the bigger picture, like you said. Um, you're not going to have a whole team of guys that are uh, analytically at the top of the league in, in all these different categories. You're going to have complementary parts just like you do, you know, fourth liners, third liners, and then your top six. And so it's really, to me, about they're, they're going to use that as a tool to develop the strengths of various players. Because, again, not every player is – a power right winger. Not every player is a defensively sound defenseman. Not every player is a, a jump into the rush defenseman, but they're going to use those kind of tools to bring out the, you know, the strong points in, in everybody's individual game and use that to mesh it together in, in the bigger picture. That's kind of where I see this going. And, and, and that's what I see as uh, Danny Breer, the GM. I don't see him as, you know, going back and making the Flyers tough to play against and, you know, bringing in uh, all, all these uh, gritty guys or whatever that everybody always criticizes the past for. I, I think it's moving forward and it's going to start moving forward rapidly here. Now, the other components of this bill are, you know, everybody's got to be working and pulling on the rope in the same direction to use an old tired cliche. Um, and, you know, that, that goes to the business side as well, headed by Valerie Camillo. Everyone will report uh, to Dan Hilferty who I think was a really big part of this process. Uh, but let's bring in the element of John Tortorella. You know, a lot of people made some assumptions, Bill, in this offseason that Torts, you know, because he was up 
upstairs and uh, having his assistants coach some games late that he was angling to move upstairs for the president of hockey operations position. I asked him about that point blank on Flyers Daily. And he said, no, I, I, I am not going into management. Um, he still enjoys the coaching and the teaching and everything that comes with it. And I think there's a huge level of investment in what's going on here in Philadelphia. Maybe he's involved in a different way than he's ever been at any other job when it comes to the construction of this roster. How do, how do those three, Tortorella, they call this the triumvirate. Dan Helferty has called it the triumvirate. Um, how does Tortorella, Keith Jones, and Danny Briere work in concert to get the most out of every element of this rebuild? I, I think there have been, um, now of course, Jonesy's, Jonesy's kind of new to this part of it too, but I, I think there have been hints as to how some of it may work. Um, and, and I think over the, you know, over, over the course of the year where over the course of the, the first year um, one thing that uh, I mean torts is was in a lot of even you know even, even before the GM change was made but uh, they were always providing each other with feedback um, you know I I think when if you look at the past 10 years right Dave Haxtell's one and only job was coach of the roster that Hexy gave him coach I, I, what I give you yeah and he didn't, I mean, he didn't pick his own assistant coaches, you know, the, the, the roster and the staff he was given and, and uh, you know, was happy to work with it. And, you know, George certainly had a lot of say in his assistant coaches. He's had a lot of say as how he, how he, how he feels as the roster is the, who should be part of it going forward. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the things that, uh, I mean, listen, George, George talks with people he trusts Um you know, and so I, I know he's had a lot of conversations with Jonesy, for example. And he had, he had a conversation with Danny even even before the changeover. I, I, I think one of the one of the things that uh, as they work together a little bit, you know, I, I think Danny provided feedback from having worked really on the ice with some of these guys. Um, you know, and and uh, when Torch felt that he was being told one thing, and he wasn't seeing it on the ice. I mean, he he's flat out and said it, you know. Uh, I mean, I'll give example, give, give an example. Certain certain players, you know, he, he talked about how he heard one thing about this guy, and he didn't see it on the ice. And uh, you know, and some sometimes it's the young guys, sometimes it's the young guys. Um, you know, uh, I think you know a guy like Tanner Lazinski, for example, kind of got in towards his doghouse a little bit over the course of the year, and and, and towards said, well. You know, I'm told that he can do this and that, but I'm not seeing it, right? Early in the year, he was saying that about Morgan Frost, and apparently he got feedback. We need a little more patience here, right? Keep keep with it. And then he saw it. He saw it over the second half of the season. So I, I think that when they, the when there there is that rapport and that that trust is built up, that's uh, you know that that's kind of the that's kind of how I see the relationship working. Um, you know. Torts has, has his method of coaching. And I mean, ult- ultimately, Danny Breer is going to get the final say on the on personnel decisions. But it, but there's going to be a lot of, you know, there's going to be a lot of back and forth discussion. Yeah. And, and Jones will be part of that. And, and to that point, too, Bill, I think uh, one thing we've seen in the last, what, uh, four hours here, and even leading into the higher. Are they going to bring in a president of hockey operations with GM experience to help Danny? And 
I, I honestly think that what we're going to end up seeing is if, if there is going to be any help provided to Danny in terms of how to structure the roster, it's actually going to come more from John Tortorella. And I think yeah. that might be a new thing. A, a part of what this new structure is going to be is, is the coach, uh, you know, having more of a say we've seen GM coaches before, but not in a very long time in the league, but I think he's going to be uh, offering a lot of input as to what he thinks the roster should be rather than it coming downward from the, the president, which you know, I'm sure Jonesy will have some things to say, but it's going to come up from, from Tortorella as well. And, and I have, I, I see no problem with that. I think that's uh, actually maybe a, a, a good way to do it because you're, you're talking to the guy that's down there on the bench every game. The one thing about it, I had to laugh when people were thinking Torts was trying to become the president or something. It's, you know, it was apparently not quite as apparent as it was to us how much he hated being up there. I mean, he couldn't stand it. Uh, if he rally. wasn't talking, if he wasn't talking to Danny upstairs, he'd just stay downstairs in his office. So, I mean, it was uh, it was very um, you know kind of out of uh, his comfort zone for him to be up there um, with us. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that that's going to be part of how this ends up being structured. And then when it comes to the the rest of the stuff that, that the GM does, I've seen a lot of people he. Does he know how to manage the salary cap? Well, here anyway, Barry Hanrahan manages the salary cap. He's done that for years under, I don't know, several different GMs yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, they, they, most most teams have capologists, if you will, like that, um, that, that manage the cap because it's its own job trying to figure out where you're going and stuff like that. And then, you know, on, on the on the drafting and development side, that's where, where Brent Flair's specialty is. So, you know, he doesn't necessarily need to be the expert at everything. He's either got staff here already that is going to, uh, you know, continue in helping in those roles, or if there's a spot where they identify that he wants a little bit more support, um, then they'll hire somebody to do that. So, you know, that's kind of where this is headed. Yeah, the, and the cap guy is at the behest of the general manager. Sure. You know, the cap guy is not saying, hey, let's pay this guy X amount of dollars for X amount of years. The cap guy is putting the structure of the contract together how the, the, you know, whatever the contract is, how that money's allocated, how much of its signing bonus, how much is in each year, all of those things, you know? So, it, you know, it's interesting in team building today because you, you have several different ways to do it. You look at teams like Toronto, or you look at teams like Edmonton, superstar players that are paying a small group of players, a huge percentage of their cap. And then you have other teams like the Boston Bruins who aren't going to be paying Pasternak a ton of money, but traditionally have not paid any individual player monstrous amounts of cash or the Carolina Hurricanes where they have a player over 7.2 million, I believe. And you look at them and their depth um, to find out what Danny Briere's philosophy will be on team building when it comes to those things, I think is going to be really interesting. You know, some, some teams like just didn't give out long-term contracts. I think San Jose was one of those teams that never gave big term, you know, to players until they acquired Eric Carlson. And it was kind of, kind of a shock that they did what they did because it was out of their character. What will the character be of Danny Briere is a big question and what his core beliefs are on how to build a team, both on the ice and, and off the ice from a financial standpoint, Bill. And, and I think also part and parcel of that is not just how you allocate the cap, but also how you allocate contracts. You know, you have, you have the 50 contract limit, uh, except for guys who can, who can slide. I think, I think we're already seeing signs that the they're trying to be more judicious in, in how they allocate those 50 contracts. Um, so I think you're going to see some of some of that in terms of 
guys who get qualifying offers and who don't. And also in terms of prospects who, who you think, well, maybe they won't play in the NHL. You know, we see them more as an AHL guy. Typically, a lot of those guys have gotten contracts, they've gotten entry-level deals because maybe they might play a secondary role in the future. Um, you know, and when you get burned a few times and, and you end up with college free agents out there, for example, that you think might be able to play, and now you're already allocated out to 50, and then you can't be in that game. Um, so I, I think already there, there's been um, – some steps talked about in that direction. And I would not be surprised if the, the flyers going forward are pretty judicious in in who they, who they sign, who they don't sign, you know, for, for, for depth purposes. Yeah. And with this new triumvirate, Bry, uh, with Keith Jones, Danny Briere and John Tortorella, I mean, the longest tenured guy in their position is John Tortorella, who has been here, uh, maybe a calendar year total. Um, this off season is really pivotal not in the sense that they're going out there and going big price tag, uh, big name shopping. Um, but there's some, as Torch has referred to it, some subtraction that needs to take place first. And you don't just, this isn't the NFL where you just say, Hey, we don't want this guy anymore. We just cut him. We move on. There's no obligation financially or anything like that. You got to make trades in this league. Danny Briere making trades for the first time and pretty significant ones, whether it's, you know, guys, uh, the names that we've heard, Kevin Hayes or Ivan Provorov, you're talking about um, pretty substantial and very important hockey trades, but he can't get pushed around in the market. He's got to, uh, you know, hold the line and start his reputation as a guy that is not going to be pushed around as a GM, much like he was as a player, yielding that stick down behind the net. Yeah, and I think that's Mike going to. I think that's going to come pretty easily to him, rather naturally. I think, and and a lot of it has to do for me with the fact that. Um, it's not just like, you know, uh, I, I, I'm just going to pull this out of thin air, but it's not like when, when Kyle Dubas comes into the league at age 25 or whatever, 27 with all these, uh, you know, seasoned hockey executives. I mean, Danny is coming in here basically at the same time as a lot of his peers are running teams elsewhere in the league. So he's dealing with people that he's familiar with and he's on pretty common ground with. Um, but I, I do think that you're going to end up seeing um, some some trades that are, like you said, kind of hockey trades that really kind of move the needle a little bit because I feel like they're going to have to do that in order to do some of the subtraction that John Tortorella wants. I don't think you're just going to be able to go out and say, oh, hey, we don't like we don't want this guy anywhere. Let's mm-hmm. just trade him for a pick or something like that, because the league has gotten to the point where, um, you know, things like cap space, uh, all that is, is used as an asset. So, you know, he doesn't want to go down the road of, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons James Van Riemsdyk stayed here at the deadlines because the flyers were going to have to give up assets just to have somebody take them. And that doesn't make any sense. Just keep them at that point. Um, you know, whether that was a negotiating thing or, that's just where the market was. I, I honestly, you know, obviously don't know. I wasn't in the room, but but you're gonna you, you want to get to the point where you're not giving away an asset to get rid of a guy for cap space purposes or something like that. So if you see one of these, you know, relatively blockbuster moves come together where it's uh, you know a, a, a young roster player, but also maybe an older veteran that they want to clear out so a younger player can come in and develop or something like that. That's the kind of thing I think. Flyers probably want to angle for this summer 
in, in trying to revamp this because, you know, like you said, it's uh, it's not like you can just drop a guy and, you know, the, the cap's only going up by a million. The Flyers already have a million four, I think, Bill, and overages, something like that. So, you know, they don't they, they, they don't want to uh, don't, they don't want to, uh, you know, have to give up assets to get cap space, but they also got to be judicious with what they have. So, you know, it, it's definitely going to be uh, an interesting uh, next couple of months, we're here on, on May 11th, so the, the cup final is over in about a month, and then next thing you know, we're right into the draft and stuff. So, uh, you know, in the next 60 days, uh, you're going to see, I think, uh, a lot continue in uh, this quote-unquote start of a new era. Bill, these three guys, this triumvirate of Keith Jones, Danny Breer, and, and John Tortorella, um, they have a unique task in a city that, is short on patience, rightfully so, and in a city that's not used to the word and gutting out a rebuild. This has been termed a rebuild, and a rebuild is something you cannot microwave. The timeline does flex. You don't, you can't put a specific timeline on it because you don't know about the development of players, the health of players. You know, you know how a guy that that you draft fifth overall in Cutter Gauthier or this year seventh overall, whoever that may be, how quickly they may get to and be a key component of a team. You don't know those things, Um, but these three are navigating this rebuild and you can't pop it in the microwave because when you microwave food, it tastes like microwave food and that's no good. Today's NHL microwave food will not pass the test, Uh, but being on the same page and being able to communicate that message is important. I know that has been a frustration of Flyers fans is that the communication didn't match what was needed or what was being executed. Sure. And, and part of, part of a rebuild too. Um, and it's not a pretty part. Sometimes you have to be willing. You might take a step back before you take your next step forward. Um, Flyers showed improvement from the competitiveness side this past year. Um, you know, the record still wasn't anywhere near playoff caliber, largely based upon two really tough stretches, November and February being really rough. But, you know, as you're, as you're making moves in the off season with the long term in mind, and I'm thinking here, you know, specifically you move Ivan Provorov, for example, right? I don't know where you're immediately replacing those minutes. You know, you have a long-term plan in mind, hopefully you're, you're hoping to develop and, and, you know, have the wherewithal to do that. But, but there was a chance that the Flyers could take a, a rec, you know, the record could take a step backward this year because, you know, um, they'll backfill as best they can, to use, to use a term that, that uh, John Tortorella has put out there many times. But, but there's no guarantees. I mean, you, you're you're still trying to, ban- to build for the long term. Um, hopefully, you know, hopefully the team uh, takes steps forward, but that that's not that's not for sure. I think you have to keep the big picture in mind that it's a, a multi-year process. And on the flip side, if uh, another year out, you surprise and, and you, you know, you get a, a wild card spot, for example, your, your surprise playoff team, that can't, that can't, um, I don't use the word delude, but, but it can alter, it can alter your big picture plan. You can't say, okay, now we can, now we can go full steam ahead. We're going to go, like a big signing, you know, and, and we're there. You know, you're, you're still trying to build consistency and identity and whatever, and I think you can't let a uh, step up or a step back. You know, you, you win some overtime games as opposed to a year ago, right? 
those are those are you know then maybe you're looking at a different picture in terms of the standings a little bit at least i don't i don't think you can i don't think you can distract it from the big picture if you take a step back you take a step forward it's still to me a multi-year process Bill, it's not completely linear, is it? Like, it's no. almost like player development. There are ups and downs to a rebuild. Like, we saw that in Colorado is a great example of that. You know, they look like a team that was on the come. They have, you know, guys like Gabriel Landeskog. They have Nathan McKinnon and, you know, a, a core of players that they're building with, with the first overall pick in McKinnon. And then all of a sudden, 2016-17 happens. Patrick Waugh resigns early in the season. They end up with the worst record in the league. They were furious that they landed fourth in that NHL draft lottery after being in the rears, 21 standings points to the second worst team in the league. He sure goes one, Nolan Patrick goes two, and eventually at number four, Colorado picks the next Bobby Orr and Kale McCarr, yeah. and it, it all works out, and they end up winning a cup. Um, and McCarr, obviously, a huge part of that. But um, sometimes, you, you know, it what seems like a gift right at the moment turns out to not be a gift, and you know, what seems like something that you didn't want turns out to be a great savior in a lot of ways. Sure. And and, and it had to be bold. Um, you know, Makar, you always you always have to be willing to take on a certain element of risk, too. I mean, Makar was a junior A defenseman. And everybody, you know, really high upside. He was going to play collegiate hockey. That's why he played junior A to, to retain his eligibility. But, you, you, you know, you draft a guy that high who's dominated lower-level competition and – is it a guarantee he's able to do the same when, when he moves up? No, it, it really isn't. There's plenty of examples of guys who dominated lower levels and then couldn't translate to higher levels. And then, then you're Cal McCars who make it look seamless. So, you know, you, you know, you can't be, can't be too conservative. You can't be just openly risky. It's really is case to case player to player. But um, you know, you, when you establish a track record, that, that you kind of, you know, you show that you've had some success where, where you can take some risks. I mean, I think that that's, that's where the Flyers want to get to, um, you know, and developmental wise, I think, I think this past year was among the positives this, this year. I think there were positive steps developmentally from the NHL level to the AHL level to on down from there. Even some guys that were picked in later rounds had surprisingly strong years after they were drafted. Um, but the Flyers have been in that position before, where you know if you look at if you look at the uh, future watch issue of the hockey news, which I mean, what's always interesting about that to me is it's based upon input from you know from personnel directors, uh, assistant GMs, and they're not rating their own system; they're rating it league wide, and they, they have to recuse themselves from rating their own system. If you look back at the late 2010s and, and very early 2020s, the Flyers were at the top, actually. Um, and it just didn't work out. Not by uh, their evaluation, by other teams. By, by other teams' evaluation, right. The, the league-wide consensus, I think it was in 2019, was the Flyers were rated number one league-wide, best system. And, you know, it, it just, for whatever reason, guys fall by the wayside and it did not work out. Um, so the Flyers have kind of ended up back in a bit of a rebuilding phase. You mentioned Colorado. Colorado had that experience, right? They were, 2008, they started a rebuild. Um you know, um, Matt Duchesne was going to be their their marquee yeah. player, yeah. And you know, Duchesne ended up being a good player, but not a, not a franchise guy. And they go in a few years, had a had a surprise playoff run. But you know, 2013, they're you know they're drafting McKinnon number one overall. And and by the way, that was the year where Seth Jones was 
kind of the consensus number one until very shortly before the draft. So, you know, they had McKinnon. Uh, they draft Landis got second overall. Ranton. Um, Ranton is a, is a top 10 pick, you know, and, and as, as you said, they had, they kind of crashed, they kind of crashed again. And, but they, they stayed, they stayed the plan in that case. They didn't, they didn't take the step back like they did previously and make trades and that kind of restart the rebuild. They, they suck with it. They had, you know, then they had a piece and, and, and off they went. So I, if, if there's one, you know, there's no one model to face. But I think you have to know when to be patient and when it's not working and you need, you know, you need to reevaluate. So the Flyers kind of ended up in a reevaluation period and then off we are again. Uh, Brian, you know, wrap up in just a couple moments, but, you know, in looking and preparing for Flyers daily after the draft lottery, you know, there's several ways to build a team. You can go full blown tank like Chicago did. And I know it stings that they win it because, you know, they, they end up getting Patrick Kane, and Flyers ended up with JVR. Um, that's nothing against JVR. Patrick Kane's going to the Hall of Fame. Um, and you look at Chicago, you know, tanking doesn't have integrity, in my opinion. And they got rewarded for it. I mean, they decimated their roster, traded young guys like Debrinkit and Doc, and obviously Kane during the season, which I totally understand. Um, but good teams and teams with sustainability, I think, all, no matter where they draft, they find talent. And you look at the Boston Bruins, who get Pasternak 25th overall. They get McAvoy 14th. Yeah, they have a number one overall pick in Taylor Hall there. Uh, you look at, like I mentioned, Carolina before. Yeah, they took Shvechnikov second overall, but Ajo 35th. The Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah, they have Stamkos number one, Hedman number two. But you find 58th overall, Nikita Kucherov. 19th overall, Andre Vasilevsky. In the third round, you get Braden Point. you got to be able to evaluate talent and transferable skills and how that talent's going to develop into a pro and at the pro game, not what they are at the moment. And that's how you can really exploit the draft. We'll see if they're able to do that. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to find some of those, uh, you know, later round gems. There's certainly no mistaking that. And, uh, you know, a guy like Noah Cates right now may be turning into one of those for the Flyers and see where it goes. But, um, you know, with respect to Chicago, I mean, Again, everybody looks at that and says, oh, they tanked and they, you know, that's what the Flyers should have done. Well, if you look a little closer at the whole situation, Chicago didn't finish last. They finished third from last and they, they won the lottery based on the draw that gave it to the third from last spot. It wasn't like Chicago um, managed to get the best odds, um, which is part of the danger of tanking. I, I don't. The, the situation that Columbus and Anaheim found themselves in, I think, was not necessarily tanking related. Um, but, you know, how would you feel if you tanked and you ended up like them right now? Um, you just, just have I mean, you're still going to get a good player, but you were angling for one guy and you don't get him. Um, you know, also to your point with with McCarr, I mean, uh, obviously this year is a little different. There's one guy. But how many years do we? look back on and redraft and the best player in the draft is not the guy that was picked first overall. I mean, the draft is a little bit of a, a crap shoot right now. Our kids. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's still a little bit hard to predict to your point about Boston. Yes. They have Taylor hall. They didn't draft Taylor hall there. They traded for him after the fact they have been able to build what they've got without uh, a ton of these high level picks. So, um, 
you know, again, it is just about uh, having, you know, good eyes out there. I mean, it's going back to the old era, but, the, you know, the Red Wings' success came off of finding all these European players in the last three, four rounds of the draft. Um, so uh, it, it is about trying, and, and, you know, not not just drafting these guys, but once you get them here, uh, you know, developing them to their strengths and not trying to make them play a certain way or, or something like that. And uh, the other thing, too, that was mentioned at some point this year is that uh, you look for guys, more guys like Owen Tippett, guys that were selected high, need a change of scenery. How many guys have we seen go out of Philly benefiting from a change of scenery and do well in other towns? Flyers need to have some of those guys coming back in. So those are kind of the the keys for me to, to building out this roster. Well, I could build a line, uh, a team of uh, four lines deep and three D pairs and a, a couple of goalies uh, that they maybe shipped off, shipped off too soon at times. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get that, you get that greediness of wanting to win so badly now that you don't want to wait on some guys and you use them to try and bolster your team, whether that was, you know, guys like Patrick Sharp or Justin Williams or, you know, others uh, along the way. But um, yeah, you got to be patient. And, you know, the Edmonton Oilers won four draft lotteries in six years, three in a row. Yeah. They drafted Hall in 10, yeah. Ryan Nugent Hopkins in 11, Nail Yakupov in 12, and then obviously McDavid um, has been a big part of that. That team's won three playoff series. That's that's incredible. Right. That's I mean, again, you have to they put, won one this year too. Yeah, you have to put the pieces around them. I mean, if you put all you get all these stars and, and studs and you can't defend, that's what happens to them in recent years. Now they've made steps to address that and having some success this year with it now, finally. But, uh, you know, again, you can't, uh, we, we've talked about it too, Jason, even when you're putting together an Olympic lineup, which is more or less a fantasy draft. I mean, you could take the top 20 players and make them into your national team, but that's not necessarily how it works. You take, uh, you know, you kind of, yeah, you take some, you take, you take your top six forwards and then you go and you look at different type of forwards for your bottom six. It's the same way with, with the D. So, uh, you know, it's, it's about finding, uh, and again, because we're in a cap world, it's about finding these complementary pieces that fit in yeah. at, uh, at, at hits that allow you to assemble the team. So, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't, I haven't done it, but I, if you go to cap friendly and you go and look at Boston's roster or Tampa's roster the last couple of years, you know, just look down at what everybody's making. You've got guys that are making a million a year being major contributors to those teams. Yeah, no doubt. Um, last thing, and we'll go to you, Bill. You get the final word here on this special edition of Flyers Daily that we're live streaming. Tomorrow, this is the press conferences. It's, uh, it's going to be a large dais tomorrow. Dan Hilferty will be there. Valerie Camillo will be there. Keith Jones, the new president of Hockey Operations, will be there. Danny Briere will be there. And John Tortorella will be there. What's important for you to hear tomorrow at that press conference? What's what's going to be the big takeaway that that you need to hear? Well, uh, I would say it's two things, and and uh, Brian Brian alluded to some of it earlier. Uh, I'd like a little bit more clarity on exactly what the uh, president of Hockey Ops uh, scope is going to be. Uh, we talked a little bit about the communication side of it, but but uh, you know what what are the specific duties that. Uh, are, are going to be included in, in what uh, Jonesy's doing, and the other part of it too is okay. And we have this: what are what are our next steps? Danny now has uh, Danny now has the interim tag removed. Um, 
you know, when obviously he's not going to be able to name names, but you, you can't accomplish everything in one off season. But I, I'd like to know, okay, now, now that, that we know who the GM is and we know who the president of hockey ops is, what are the immediate next steps of focus? Obviously the draft is a piece of it, but uh, you know, where, where are you looking to, to go in terms of prioritizing the, this off season? Yeah, I think those are two good things. You know, how is Keith Jones' performance judged? What are the responsibilities is a big thing. And then the other thing, too, is you know, we all want transparency. You know, who are you going to trade? What are you going to do? Who are you trying to get? Right. GMs aren't going to be aren't going to say that stuff publicly. First of all, they're never going to criticize one of their own players and devalue them publicly. Um, and then they're never going to tip their hand publicly either. So while I get we all want transparency, um, it's better to not get transparency. We can we can demand transparency in method and you know what the plan is per se, uh, but the specifics uh, we likely will never get. Great stuff, guys. Um, appreciate it on this special edition of Flyers Daily. Read Bill Meltzer stuff at PhiladelphiaFlyers.com, NHL.com, HockeyBuzz.com. Brian Smith now writing as well on PhiladelphiaFlyers.com. We got tons of stuff coming. Uh, so make sure you check out the website. Uh, we'll be back Monday. We'll have another Monday with Meltzer coming up in just a couple of days' time. We'll kind of talk about the press conference, what we heard, what we liked, and uh, much more. So thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. This has been a special edition of the Flyers Daily Podcast. We'll talk to you Monday on a brand-new episode of Flyers Daily. the fl-